Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to We Move Through Stormy Weather, a fish podcast where we compare and contrast songs and the evolution of their jamming styles throughout the band's career. My name is Ryan Storm, and today I am joined by Rob Mitchum. Rob is a science and music writer in Oak Park, Illinois. By day, he writes about computer and data science for the University of Chicago. By night, he writes about bands for publications such as Pitchfork and Uncut. His current jam bandy projects are 36 from the Vault, a podcast about the Grateful Dead Dick's Picks series, and Fish Crit, a series of essays on the fish shows of 25 years ago. He's currently making his way through Fall 96, and I highly recommend checking it out if you're not already. Rob, say hi. Yeah, hey, Ryan. Uh, really excited to be here, and great to, great to chat with you. Yeah, thanks so much for being on today. Really excited to dive in uh, to your uh, pick, uh, which is simple, and I know we kind of... Um, we kind of timed this perfectly because the day that this is coming out is actually the same day that you will be writing about the, your simple pick, which is eleven eight ninety six. So if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the background behind this pick and, you know, fall 96. Yeah, no. So the timing, yeah, as, as you said, worked out perfectly here uh, because I, uh, when I, since I started this essay project, I'm constantly sort of coexisting in two different eras of fish, uh, writing about shows 25 years ago, but also trying to keep up with the current tour and what they're doing. Um, and Simple turned out to be the, sort of the perfect song uh, to talk about those two different eras Definitely. Uh, in one episode, because 1996 was really like the coming out year for Simple as a jam vehicle. It had jammed a little bit before that, but uh, every version in Fall 96 is uh, sort of a improvisational uh, set piece uh, for the show that it appears in. Uh, and, you know, obviously Simple has had a great 2021, too, and we're going to talk about that. And has, you know, my favorite jam of the entire year is a Simple, and that's the one we're going to talk about today. Uh, but yeah, so I picked uh, this one, uh, both because the date worked out perfectly, uh, and also because uh, this was a show I was at. It was my second fish show ever. My first, what was your first? show. My first show was at Alpine Valley in the summer of '96, so August 10th, '96. Uh, in the fall of '96, I was a high school senior. I was visiting college campuses and just happened to uh, <laughs> plan a visit to University of Illinois. Uh, uh, same day that Fish was playing at a Sunday. What a coincidence. Yeah, what a coincidence. And I was like, <laughs> okay, mom and dad, uh, you mind dropping me off at the basketball arena after we're done doing our campus <laughs> tour and picking me up in a few hours. So, uh, so yeah, my first time seeing, you know, the indoor lights experience, uh, the fall sort of lot scene, very different from Alpine Valley, which is, you know, huge and massive assembly hall is... If you've never seen it, it looks like a UFO just landed in the middle of a cornfield in central Illinois. Really cool venue. I uh, had some great, there were some great fish shows there. I probably went to maybe the worst of the three uh, that were there, but that's okay. Wow. It was still a very good show. I, I had a great time. And 
it's one of these fall 96 shows that, um, you know, people don't really listen to fall 96 and maybe we can talk about that a little more. Um, but it's like a show that does pretty respectably, I think, uh, within that month, within that tour. Yeah. I think 96 is definitely the biggest gap in my fish knowledge. Like I know I, I hadn't heard this simple, uh, before yesterday when I did, you know, when I did my notes, uh, for this, um, and I definitely have, you know, reading your write-ups on it all year has been awesome because, you know, I kind of knew about the vague premise of 96, which is like transition year between the peaks of 95 and 97 and, you know, Trey stepping back and trying to work on more democratic jams and, you know, remain in light and all that stuff. But it, it was cool to dive into one of these jams and kind of hear firsthand what you, you know, what I've been reading in your write-ups for a while, which is cool. Yeah. And also this 11-8, if I'm not mistaken, is part of like a five or six nights in a row for the band or something, which is crazy because it's like a bunch of different venues and like five nights in a row or right. something. Yeah, which, and to set sort of the scene for 96, uh, Fall 96 is the first tour where they played arenas uh, for the entire tour. Uh, even 95 and 94, when they were playing really big arenas, uh, in, on the East coast and in the Midwest a little bit, uh, they played theaters, uh, in other parts of the country. They played a few outdoor shows, things like that. So this is the first, like every arena, every, every stop on the tour is, uh, usually a, a college basketball or pro basketball arena. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're right. They were, uh, barreling through the Midwest. This of course falls between, um, sort of the, the big peak of Halloween 96, which I recently wrote about. Uh, I called it the most important fish show ever, uh, which I don't think is too much hyperbole. I mean, it really uh, changed their entire direction. They had kind of reached their first career peak at the end of 1995. Uh, and musically, I think some of the lackluster results of 96 is they didn't really know where to go next. And yeah. so Halloween 96 was like, aha, here is something we can build on. Here is the future. Uh, but it didn't happen right away. Uh, so I think November and, uh, you know, there's a few shows in December 96 are really interesting because it's kind of like, we know what we want to do next. We don't exactly know how to execute on that idea. So you get little glimpses of it here and there. Um, right. Mixed in with Billy Bree's material, which is all very new, and sort of the remnants of uh, where they're at at the end of 95 as far as like embracing their arena rockness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one one thing that I noticed, you know, on, on listening to this and something that I, you know, really stuck out to me again, I'm a keyboard player and Paige is who I'm zeroing in on most of the time. And, you know, in, in your write-ups the last few weeks, I've noticed you talking about when Trey goes to the mini kit um, to try to give, you know, the other band members a chance to step forward and especially Paige to work on. Um, Paige seems definitely to kind of flounder a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like Trey, Trey goes to the percussion rack at about uh, six minutes and 50 seconds uh, into the jam or so and is there for uh, five minutes pretty yeah. much. And Paige um, is just playing uh, – the simple jam for another two minutes just because it seems like he doesn't really know where to go next um, yeah. and it's just playing over that progression while Mike and Fish hold down the groove so it was it was an interesting thing to note where you know obviously in stark contrast um, by the eight minute mark of uh, the Deer Creek simple from this year which I picked um, it's like already full like crazy going into space Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I'm interested in your perspective on this because uh, this simple 11896 simple is a very typical fall 96 jam. Where yeah. You have the song, uh, you have a little bit of jamming, but pretty quickly Trey moves over to his mini percussion kit he was using. He started using it in 95, but it's most prevalent in 1996. Um, and he spends a long time there. I mean, this this is typical. Five I minutes. have I have one of my notes is Trey imitating a clock at the eight minute mark. Right, and so this is the thing with the mini kit. It was even at the time very controversial among fish fans, and it's you know Trey is actually a pretty good drummer. Like he shows off, yeah. you know, when, when fish is singing, uh, he can do he can drum just fine. And I imagine he's a pretty good percussion player too. But either it was mic'd wrong, or he just didn't quite have the setup to do much more than just kind of like metronome 
in the background. Yeah. Uh, and and the had, like, a couple of cowbells and maybe like a, a sim like a splash symbol or something. Exactly. Yeah. It's really minimal and it just doesn't. It, the idea is good, uh, but it doesn't really work on tape. Uh, and I don't recall it working very well in person either. <laughs> um, but I, the the his idea, his motivation for doing that is was totally right on, which was. I, you know, I'm Trey, I'm the, the leader of this band, I'm a guitarist in a rock band, so I'm naturally the one that is steering all these jams. I want to get everybody else involved more. The most obvious way for me to do that is to stop playing guitar and play something else and let, you know, Paige and Mike and Fishman step up and decide the direction of the jam. Now, now Paige is my favorite member of Fish by far. I love Paige. Wow. Uh, I think his strengths are not necessarily leading the band. Uh, that might I be different that, today, actually. Um, but back then, it certainly was not. He no, just no. creates, uh, you know, he adds wonderful color uh, to what uh, the rest of the band is doing. He yeah, is like when, when Trey up. when Trey is shining the flashlight on the path, Paige knows exactly where to go and how to get there. Exactly. Yeah, he embellishes jams beautifully. And yeah. he's not a flashy player. He'll solo in jams that call for sort of, you know, composed or not composed, but there are sections marked out for here's where the page solo goes, yeah. but just in completely open improvisation, uh, at least in the nineties. What's actually interesting to me, out. like nowadays, even watching page solo, he always seems kind of like nervous and shaky whenever he has <laughs> like a solo in a song like yeah. especially on piano, but then in jams, he'll just be casually playing these insane runs and everything just, you know, without a care in the world. And, it's just interesting to me watching him when when he's put on the spot uh, for a solo and like on the webcast, I can see like either in his face or in his hands a little bit. He's just kind of like, ah, like what? His body language. Yeah, he's waiting yeah. for Trey to, to, to end it, right? Because that's that's who decides when you move on to something else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this in this jam, this is a perfect example of that where he tends to hop between keyboards a lot. Uh, during that section, yes. uh, he's not. The jam isn't really going in a new direction. It's just kind of like stagnant, in limbo for a little bit. Yeah. Um, one part that I think is interesting in this is the uh, in this particular simple though is that he does spend while he's hopping between keyboards, he spends a little bit of time on the synthesizer yes. uh, that he had at that time, which you know I think it's the Moog source. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is really funny to hear him sort of you know tentatively playing a little bit of synthesizer in 1996 yeah. compared to the 2021 yeah, jam. listen to the deer creek simple where he's just <laughs> all over it yeah exactly it's like the dominant sound in 2021 so yeah. it really shows the progression of page and his confidence and his ability to steer uh the tone and direction of jams in a really cool way to, to listen to these back to back yeah and and one thing that was cool to me is like you know the jam seems very hesitant and disjointed for the first while while Trey's on percussion and then he gets back on guitar uh you know like 11 and a half minutes and then just immediately just boom and it's just like full rage peak mode for the last you know seven or eight minutes of the jam right and so i'm not sure how apparent this was from listening to it but he actually has technical problems when he goes back to guitar okay uh, so i thought that was just him dicking around with his rig like, yeah, I thought it, it sounds like some cool, like glitchy sounds that he would be doing now. Um, but he yeah. was actually having trouble, which is like such a rarity at a fish show. And this always blows my mind that their yeah. crew is so good that you never, almost never see him tune his guitar. You almost never have technical problems. It seems like Mike fusses around a little bit more, but Trey is usually like, he's ready to go uh, yeah. for and play for three hours without anything going wrong. Uh, but this is one of the few times I've seen him uh, frustrated he actually his guitar wasn't coming back and he actually at one point i think there's a video of this show online you can see it he turns around and actually kicked his old amp like <laughs> the old little tiny wooden cabinets that he used he's trying to like kick it to get it back that was this it. that was this show yeah yeah and he and like a, a guy scurried out there whoever the tech was at the time and was was fixing around so it, it works great because when it does start working uh I think he is actually a little pissed off <laughs> because yeah. it's such a rare thing to happen. And the solo afterwards is super aggressive and super angry. Extremely 
that's what I was talking about, where there's still these remnants of late 1995 and, that you find mm -hmm. in 1996. Uh, but yeah, just a really like amazing sort of high energy uh, ending, last third of this jam uh, that makes it stand out. Yeah, and I, that's interesting to note that he had the technical troubles because I noted it uh, as Trey playing with bursts of feedback at 12 and a half minutes. I figured that was just him experimenting with sounds, as, <laughs> you know, he has always done and just being like, let's see what I can do here because then Paige kind of plays some dissonant chords and it sounds like a kind of, you know, classic mid-90s. We're trying to go somewhere with the jam, but we don't really have a defined path into type two land yet. So we're going to get really dissonant and weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, it, it also led to one of the best placements for Loving Cup uh, right afterwards because uh, they did the I, I Know I Play a Bad Guitar. Um, yeah. Oh. And everybody freaked out. So it was, <laughs> uh, they turned it into a, into a positive, as Fish often does. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I want to talk about the, the Deer Creek one uh, a little bit. Obviously, you know, it's both of our favorite jams uh, from 2021 so far. Um, have, have you seen any shows this year? So I did not. Uh, I have small children who are not vaccinated yet. I decided to just take this year off. Um, things, you know, got better around the time of Deer Creek that I might have considered going. But at that point, it was uh, I was probably sitting on the lawn and I don't really like sitting on the lawn at Deer Creek. And that's fair. Uh, they made me pay for it, though. <laughs> playing no really good shows, including, yeah, probably my favorite show of the summer. Uh, yeah. On the first night. Yeah, I did. I did the Phoenix Chula Vista L.A. run uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was fantastic yeah um but so th this deer creek simple jam immediately the first time i heard it you know i was absolutely blown away um especially again as a keyboard player and someone who loves page so much like this is just such an incredible jam for him um you know and he's obviously he spends the majority of the jam uh on the moog one uh which for those who don't know that's his uh you know that's his newer synth uh, that he got in 2019 that he's really been playing a ton this year. Um, but there's also some great work on his uh, older synth, the CS60, which would actually, at the time of the 1996 one, I bet Paige was probably thinking about buying it at that point because he would get it, uh, you know, he would have it. I believe uh, he got it in the late spring of 97 because it showed up uh, in the early summer Europe tour. So is that the that would be the meat stick? Synth? Yes, that would yes. be the meat stick synth, and so and and that one is all over uh, ninety seven jams mm -hmm. uh, and late nineties everywhere. Yeah, um, I think you know it, it's really interesting contrasting his synth playing in the two jams as well because obviously the the synths are very different. Um, like the Moog source that he had uh, is was a, a monophonic synth, which means you can only play one note at a time. Um, and both the CS60 and the one are polyphonic, which means you can play chords and, you know, do all sorts of crazy stuff. But, you know, obviously what we talked about before is kind of more hesitancy, uh, towards playing and on the synth, you know, that one period while Trey's on percussion where he is on the synth, um, he just kind of feels like me when I'm like noodling, yeah. you know, when I'm, or I'm like, Oh, like a synth, I've never played this before like let's see what i can do here and so it's it's really a great contrast because in a lot of jams in the in the um you know he got that synth in 94 or 95 i believe and he really didn't use it a lot as a lead instrument or a lot at all he was still leaning mostly on the organ the piano and to a lesser extent the clav um, and so hearing it, you know, it pops up kind of in 95 sometimes in like weird spacey jams when he'll just like throw it in for a little bit of extra texture. Mm -hmm. uh, but he doesn't really start leading jams with a synth or bring it, you know, as a central idea of it until 97. Right. So it's cool to hear the beginnings of that idea here. Yeah. And having done all those 94 and 95 shows, I mean, I, I always notice when synth comes up because it is so uh rare yeah. <laughs> to hear his synthesizer and you're right he uses it almost as kind of a novelty yeah um and it makes me wonder like we talk a lot about the influence of covering remain in light in terms of the band getting funkier getting more dem uh, democratic getting more textural 
all of these things. But there's also a lot of synthesizer on Remain in Light. And I wonder if that showed him sort of, you know, new ways of using the synthesizer that he already had in his rig. That, right. again, maybe didn't pay off until the following year. Uh, but, uh, you know, opened up some new ideas for him, which is which is another you know, benefit of that. that show. Yeah, yeah I, I would think I would think you know, likely I, I, I wanted to ask, like, what, what was it like for you listening to every show from 94, 95 and 96 now? Like what, what's your approach to getting through all of these? Cause I know like I, I tried to do, uh, you know, like a year ago, I tried to do a grateful dead Europe 72 listening project where I was yeah. listening to a show every day and writing like a short write up on it. And I gave up after like four shows. I was like, I can't keep up with, you know, <laughs> hours of listening and then that and it's the same songs every time obviously less repeats in fish than on that tour but still their catalog was a lot smaller at the time and there are a lot more repeats yeah so i actually started this project with 93 even but it it was almost it's got to be about 10 years ago now uh, and it's moved through different like platforms. I remember I have actually, I did actually go back and I've read all of the stuff on your website. Like I did yeah, uh, okay. in the spring, I was like, I'm going to go catch up on these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, originally I just wrote, I, I listened to it and I wrote uh, like just tweets while I was listening. So I did like a Twitter thread as I was listening to it mm-hmm. and it eventually turned into essays. And then in fall for fall 94, I realized I, I was just doing them whenever at first. Uh, so I wasn't, that was kind of how I got through it was I spaced them out and only listened to them when I wanted to listen to them. But, mm-hmm. uh, in fall 94, I realized I was, it was 2019. So I think the 25th anniversary was coming up. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I need like a deadline to do this. So I'm going to write an essay for the 25th anniversary of every show. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's a lot of listening and, you know, a lot of shows I don't listen to, you know, more than once I'll, I'll give it one listen and right. then I'll sort of dial in on the points, the, the parts of the show that I want to focus on. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, I, you know, even when I'm not doing this project, I think it's probably, you know, it, it's pretty typical for me to listen to probably one fish show a day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's Fair. the time commitment isn't that much. The do, you, is hard, um, do, you, but, do you try uh, to you try to time your 36 from the vault research for when fish isn't on tour? Like, <laughs> you know, when there's no fish shows that you have to listen to? Yeah, it does. It worked out this time. We're between yeah. seasons just in time for me to do this. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so it has worked out in the past because that's a lot if I have to do both the dicks picks. Uh, and shows around that Dick's Picks plus fish shows. Um, right. That's like, you know, half my waking hours spent <laughs> listening to jam bands, which is fun. Um, yeah, it's really like, it, it, it's a difficult project, but it's really fulfilling. And it's kind of like, it's one of those artistic things where I feel like I almost like have to do it. I've just like thought about fish so yeah. much in my lifetime that it's fine. It's, it's a format to get all of those thoughts out of my brain and onto paper. I don't really even care if other people read it. I'm like flattered that people do and that people mm-hmm. enjoy it. Um, it's, it, it just, you know, I got, I, I started writing as a hobby about music. It turned into sort of a career. I, music writing for me was never my main career, but mm-hmm. it, I, I started getting paid for it and it started being work. And this is sort of a way to get back to the original like hobby of, writing about music and just music that I enjoy. I'm not trying to be like a impartial critic. I'm just talking about, this is my favorite band. These are, this is music that I enjoy and I want to dig into what makes it work. So it's like people that build train sets in their basement. Like instead of doing that, I write essays about fish. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I mean, I, I just started a written component uh, for this podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Oh, it's been like a month now. Time is weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've, I, it, it's cool because one thing that you do, which I haven't quite figured out yet, is you're able to um, do a write-up of the show without kind of taking it through every song. And yeah. I, I think it's really cool when you spend the write-up talking about like one aspect of something that happens instead of being like, and then they move through a great segment of Sen of a Mule, Character Zero, and Billy Breathes. Like, yeah. That, that and that is like a, a it's a rule of mine not to do that <laughs> because I mean there's there's a lot of those types of reviews out there already I mean in the, in the comments of every setlist page on Fishnet you have people right. that have done that um, and you know that's great that people have done that of course but uh, I, I want I try to do something different I try to find a, a different angle sometimes you know very peripheral to the show which is you know I worry 
about people who like maybe that's their favorite show or a show that they went to or it was their <laughs> first show and they can't wait to hear me talk about something and then I go off on a tangent about Carl. See Barraza a rule about a rule about fish <laughs> is everything you do you're going to upset some people and exactly. you're going to make some people happy. Right, that's- right. <laughs> and, and so um, but yeah that's that's the mission is it's the the overall arc is about how did fish grow into this like amazing band and I my, my favorite era of Fish is the late 90s, like a lot of fans my age. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's really this 93 through 96 story has been a little bit about, you know, what how did they go from what they were in the early 90s, which was a very good band, to a, a completely different beast. Uh, right. well, through I'm really looking forward to seeing how, you know, your write-ups kind of change uh, as you move into, you know, 97 and the late 90s, because it's really, you know, you for the last couple of years, you've been really talking about like that transitional period that they've been going through and finding their footing. And then they finally find that footing Mm -hmm. uh, in 97. So I'm excited to see, you know, diving into, you know, probably, you know, a year, most people know a lot better than 94 through 96. Yeah. It's almost like scarier to write about 97. And I felt this way about fall 95, which is, you know, such a esteemed tour as well. Yeah. Um, because 97 has been written about a ton, of course. Uh, Wally Holland has a great book. Um, I read that book. A Tiny Space to Move and Breathe that is already went show by show through fall 97. So I'm going to be like, you know, in his uh, footsteps trying to do my own. If you take haven't book. read that book, you yeah. should because it's really good. He also has a great uh, book on a live one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, highly recommend. Well, it- yeah, well, he's one of my favorite writers about fish and somebody who I aspire to, you know, equal in my in my thoughts and analysis of these shows. So, yeah, 97 is going to be a real challenge. I'm already nervous about it. Fall 96 is like it's nobody's favorite tour. So you have a little bit more leeway. And it's also, as you said, not people don't even really listen to it. There's a lot of yeah. things to discover from it. I'm discovering things from it because there's there's a lot of shows I haven't heard in this in this yeah. you know couple months. So um, yeah, every tour provides a different challenge. So awesome. it's, it's it's an endlessly fulfilling project. Like I, well, I keep wondering when I'm going to run out of energy to do it, and it hasn't happened yet. Even though it, it gets a little touch and go hitting the deadline every night sometimes. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let let let's bring it back to the topic for a little bit. Um, sure. You know, tangents are kind of my thing. Here. <laughs> um, but so um, I, I want to hear your thoughts a little bit on the Deer Creek Simple because, you know, I've shared some of mine and right, you know, right here. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know, um, you know, probably, you know, a lot of people if they're comparing a 1.0 jam to a 3.0 jam will be like, well, obviously the 1.0 jam was better. Yeah. Uh, this is not one of those cases. I mean, I think the Deer Creek Simple obliterates the champagne. <laughs> simple uh, that I chose. Um, And I mean, it is like just a perfect encapsulation of uh, where they're at this year, I think. Um, And how exciting this year has been against all odds, right? I mean, this is a band that's been playing for 38 years now. Um, They shouldn't still be this good. They shouldn't still be finding new territory to explore. Yeah. Uh, it is an absolute miracle that we are lucky enough <laughs> to witness this. Okay. Um, the Simple Jam, so I, while I wasn't there, I was watching live on the webcast. I bought the Summer Pass. That was my consolation prize for not going to any shows as I bought right. the, the pass to watch all the shows. Uh, and often when I'm doing, when I'm watching a webcast, I'm doing something else too, right? I'm either talking to people on Twitter about the show or I'm playing a video game or reading a book or whatever. And that was one where I just had to like stop everything and watch (laughs) like what was happening. Um, And I just love, we've talked about it already, but I love that Paige has stepped up and for her, you know, going on four or five years now, at least since the Baker's Dozen has seemingly been sort of the driver of this new sound and a lot of their jams Uh, and using these synthesizer tones to put them into uncomfortable positions where new creative juices start flowing. Yeah. Uh, and this is a perfect example. He's just starts playing that extremely heavy synth line, uh, very quickly after they get out of the the song itself. Uh, and it just pushes everybody to get weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, and I love that. It is a relentless jam. It's dark fish, which I love. I love evil dark fish. And it, because, you know, I, I understand why 
there's less evil fish now than there was mm-hmm. in the late nineties. Yep. Um, because the band Trey, especially are all in a much better place now. Uh, so there's not a lot of darkness within themselves to bring out, I think. Uh, but it, but I just love when they do go back there because it's such, it's like, it, it's so confrontational. <laughs> and I love that about yeah. them that they'll be playing. They're playing in an amphitheater for 25,000 people and just playing this extremely aggressive. It sounds like you're in a black hole. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and just, you know, overwhelming. I think like by, by the end of it, it's just like waves of sound because Trey's guitar is just like howling. Well, so that's <laughs> what one of the, like that waves of sound kind of effect is, a couple of times during the jam, like uh, the best example being at around 17 minutes and 20 seconds, Trey actually turns off his guitar amp. So all we hear is the Leslie. Ah. Um, and if, if, if you watch uh, his rig rundown that he did uh, in September, um, yeah. he talks about, you know, how he just loves like putting all his weird effects through the Leslie. And then it's just like, whoa, like crazy. That's so cool. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it sounds more like the way he used the Leslie in 2018 um, which was th- there was no like combo um, between signal from his guitar amp and signal from the Leslie. It was just straight Leslie. Mm. And so that's kind of what he gets back to here where, you know, he switches it off. So you don't hear that kind of grounding tone of his guitar. And it's just all his weird effects being thrown around the venue by the Leslie speaker. And it's really, really cool. <laughs> things about Trey and this is one of the reasons why like 98 99 is my favorite era of fish of all mm-hmm. is that Trey does not plan to go into a jam and make his guitar sound like that yeah. he is like experimenting with tone and effects live in front of us and I, I love those jams where it's clear by the end of it that he has combined you know 10 different pedals in some way that he's never even heard before yeah and, 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 and really i bet you if you asked him after the show to replicate it he probably yeah, could exactly like he would never be able to get back to that without you know like a real concentration um and it's you can hear it you can hear it in his giddiness uh you can hear it when they go back into simple at the end oh my god is that effect going and he's yeah. like laughing at the fact that they're back to the song and singing over it um and the other thing i want to mention too is from watching the webcast um, so Deer Creek was one of the venues where they couldn't move the lights, right? Uh, right. So they just had rows of lights. Um, and they kept showing this shot, I remember, um, where it was sort of like Trey's perspective looking out at the crowd. If you know that one camera that they just yeah. have stationary behind them. And whatever Kuroda was doing with the LEDs, 
it looked like just waves of light were shooting out over the fans. That's and awesome. this is what the band is looking at while they're playing this jam. And, I, you know, we always talk about how Chris, like, kind of conducts the band a little bit with what he's doing with the lights. And I think this is a perfect example where those that that Leslie Speaker sound that you're talking about uh, is going right with what the band is seeing. Like, he's playing to what he's seeing. And it, it was just a really cool effect. Uh, the other, the, he also did, Kuroda also did that effect, which was the coolest thing I've seen with the lights so far where he was doing the lights from left to right, except putting like a big black spot in the middle sometimes. Yeah. So it looked like this, like you talked about it being sounded like a black hole. Like it was just like this black ominous thing moving across. And again, evil fish back in full, uh, full measure in 2021. Who would have thought? Yeah. And another incredible part of this jam is Fishman and, you know, how he is leading jams this year um, in a way that, you know, we haven't seen really, I don't think ever, you know, he's always been an absolutely phenomenal drummer and, you know, he was playing like crazy aggressively and fast in the 90s as well. But yeah, he's like stepping up and like he changes where the jam goes numerous times throughout this. Like there's a section where um, Trey and Fish find like a bluesy groove sometime <laughs> around 16 minutes and something like it's like like what? Like it's not something you'd expect to find in the middle of this jam like as you're like in this like black hole like space like synths and everything and then suddenly it's like sounds like Julius like they like, could what? have done Julius yeah. right there I, I I pinpointed that part too to talk about because I love that that pops out out of nowhere something that only fish would do right take yeah. this incredible like shoegaze jam and then suddenly drop like a blues swing in it and then and yet not segue out of it like segue into an even deeper like shoegaze noisy jam right and i i think that's that's a really amazing part of this year is how they do stuff like that and they don't take the exit ramp like we saw them do so much in 2019 like you know at, there were a couple of times at the at the show in phoenix that i was at um where i was like oh no like trey's getting dangerously close to the plasma vamp like oh yeah do it <laughs> and i think i think there were a couple of moments um i don't remember exactly i think maybe the soul planet from phoenix um where i think you know a couple of years ago he would have taken the segue there uh, yes. and you know he's still done stuff like that a couple of times this year like um you know looking at um the forum second set as an example like that la woman but it was also awesome um and so it's cool looking at how he like teases that and then we'll just keep going. And it wasn't quite a plasma tease, but it was close. Uh, and looking at the the NICU show as well in Chula Vista, um, and one thing that stuck out to me there was how well he threw in the NICU teases uh, in pretty much every jam. Where in the past stuff like that, it would have been a cool moment, but you know he wasn't always um, on point with it. And if they're playing it in a different key, kind of fumbles over the melody a little bit. Yeah. There was one point I was listening to that tube jam earlier today. And as he's playing the NICU riff, you can kind of feel that he's about to screw it up because they're in a different key. And instead <laughs> of trying to figure it out on the fly, he just goes back into jamming. Right. So it, yeah. it's, it's very smooth. I've been to some shows where he like tries to cram like the cross eyed still waiting into everything <laughs> and it, 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 it gets old fast but no you're totally right that fishman i wrote about this in one of the 96 essays which i can't remember which one it was now because uh, they, they start to blur together um but uh i mean fishman is we, we talk about page guiding the jams but fishman is like absolutely the reason why they're so vital still now because he is drumming way better than any like man in his 50s should yeah. uh both in terms of just his physical ability, uh, but also in how good he is at, you know, anchoring these jams that go into a really abstract place. This had a lot in early 3.0. There were a lot of times where they tried to move into like spacey territory yeah. and it just kind of like fell apart like, pretty rapidly. And yeah. I honestly think that might've been Fishman, like, cause I, I think he has the hardest job when they do that. Right. Because mm -hmm. it's like the mini kit jam in 96. Like unless somebody is still propelling the jam forward, it just kind of like swims, it treads water for a little yeah. while. Um, and so he has to come up with some way that both uh, doesn't clash with the spacey stuff that the rest of the band is doing, but also keeps this momentum going and keeps some forward progress going. And 
yeah, somewhere around, I, you know, even like 2013, 2014, when things really started to turn a corner, I think he figured out or remembered uh, how to play that role and has been, yeah, absolutely a key sort of anchor when they decide to go this direction as they're doing more and more often lately. Yeah, and I, I think as you mentioned, the dark jams in uh, 1.0 were really like them, you know, letting their anger out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think it's just like, them being like, hey, like, we have these crazy effects. Like, let's dick around with them for a while and see what happens. Like, yeah, I think um, you can see, think, like, they're, they're having, like, the best time, like, while they're doing it. Like, Trey, at one, I feel like at some points in this jam, just like while they're in, like, woo land, he just has, like, a, you know, that shit eating grin on his face. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. My hope uh, when, you know, they were coming back from being off the road during the pandemic was that they were just like, locked in their house going stir crazy just coming up with like crazy new sounds and like page made his synthesizer album right i don't know if he made that before the pandemic but it came out during the pandemic and it was like hey maybe they're actually kind of like in the lab (laughs) during all this i think uh, they were a little bit out new things uh it it seems to have come true because trey just has so many new toys at his disposal uh well and and his tone this year oh unbelievable like yeah it's just it's so perfect and it you know finally like the last few years of inconsistent tone have paid off because uh, he's finally found you know this and hopefully you know he sticks with it after this year because obviously as we know Trey has a habit of being like hmm, maybe I can try this and maybe it'll be better right um, he's always fiddling yeah yeah so, which has its good and bad sides yeah. yeah no I mean this year was spectacular and I still haven't spent as much time with fall as I want to uh, because I've been so busy in 1996. I keep tweeting about how uh, grumpy I am that I have to listen to all these 96 shows <laughs> instead of being able to listen to the 2021 highlights over and over again. But um, we should talk about Sci-Fi Soldier because I think it's totally relevant I agree. to the simple jam, which is, you know, it, it's one of these that while it's not like a pre-tease or whatever, um, it definitely has the same, you know, aesthetic. Vibe that a yeah. lot of the sci-fi soldier stuff does with that overpowering synthesizer tone. Um, and, you know, everybody, you know, trying to make their instruments sound like other instruments or not even instruments at all. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your take on whether uh, was sci-fi soldier in the works and that influenced the sound of summer and fall, or was the sound of summer and fall influencing what became sci-fi soldier i i think it's the former um i think this definitely feels like something that they were working on for a while and definitely i think if, if they didn't start it before the summer i think that's something they were working on throughout the summer uh while they were on tour um you know obviously um something like castle vax was thrown together in six weeks uh pretty <laughs> yeah. much um but i i think the the sci-fi soldiers like just by the sheer volume of songs and the set pieces and everything. Like, I, I think this was something they had probably, you know, obviously, and it, it ties together the stories from Castle Faxed and the clones. And, you know, so they've been long conning us for three years now. <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if when they came up with Castle Faxed, they were like, okay, next Halloween is going to be like the continuation of this. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if they, I, I don't think they started writing the songs uh that far back because you know i think we would have heard more of this influence in 2019 mm-hmm. um if they had been doing that um but i think it's definitely something they were working on uh for months leading up to this and that you know i i see where a lot of the criticism of it stems from um where a lot of the songs are kind of a a similar groove and whatever um but also at the same time you know a lot of what people love about fish is that 97 sound which is a lot of the jams are a similar groove and i think it's just somewhat of a bias towards uh new material that fish puts out um obviously there there are some gaps in it like everybody loved chilling thrilling and most people loved cast with backs like i i just think it's, it's one of those things that like you know i've seen a good couple comparisons like you know people have a problem with knuckle bone broth avenue but they like love the lyrics smegma dogmatogram fish market stew right yeah i mean i while i was watching the halloween set i stayed up late to watch it live um me too i i'm still recovering 
I am too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I kept thinking like the song is horrible and the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And this whole thing is so dumb and I cannot wait to see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like it was so perfectly fish uh, in that, you know, I, you know, I always have this, you know, music critic, you know, devil on my shoulder that is like, man, this stuff is stupid. So I did this uh, podcast band splain uh, on Spotify uh, mm-hmm. several months ago, which is a podcast where they, they bring in a, a super fan of a band or an artist and ask them to explain why it's so good. Yeah. Um, and so they've done all sorts of bands and I was one of the first episodes I actually recorded it before I even had heard before it had even the show had even started. So I didn't know what the format was going to be or anything. Uh, and the host of the show, Yassi uh, Salik is, is very, um, she was a little more confrontational than I expected. Uh, mm. So I felt like I was on the defensive about fish the whole time. And everything that came out of my mouth, I was like, part of me was thinking, man, this sounds so ridiculous. Like anybody who hasn't heard fish is going to, because we talked about Casbot Vax and I'm like, yeah, so they they made up this Scandinavian band and <laughs> pretended yeah. they were covering their album and it had this whole backstory. And then we played a clip of Turtle in the Clouds. And it has just, you know, preposterous lyrics and a whole dance routine in the middle and all this stuff. And she was just like, what are you playing for me? Like, what are you talking about? Um, So this was, I mean, Sci-Fi Soldier was just that to like the next next degree, which I what I appreciated about it was I I loved the concept of Casbot Vaxxed and the backstory and everything. Uh, But then the songs... I like them a lot now, um, but when I first heard them, I was like, these just sound like normal Fish songs. Like, if they were going to commit to this bit, uh, they should have played music that just doesn't sound anything like Fish. Like, it right. should sound like a totally well, different band. I was worried. I remember being worried, like, when the when the Fish bill came out. I was like, are they about to play a bunch of songs in another language? Like, <laughs> Yeah. What? Well, it was, but it was Fish language. Not, yeah. And yeah. I, I remember waking up the next morning um, because I, I didn't, uh, you know, I was... It was pre-pandemic, so I was out with friends uh, that Halloween night, and then I didn't stay up uh, to watch the webcast, um, which I, I should have. But you know, yeah. I, I made up for it by staying up the next three nights. Which, <laughs> yeah. Um, but by yeah, soldier, just to complete that thought, was that, like it, it felt more like what I wanted the Casbah backs sound right to be. Like every song, while they still you could still tell they were fish songs, obviously. Like they dove much harder into. You know, what What does it sound like if we write a song around just this crazy synth sound that Paige found for Egg in a Hole or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, rather than it being, you know, sort of, you know, your typical Fish song, but uh, with, you know, weird lyrics, uh, even weirder lyrics than normal. So uh, I, I, I have not listened to the set that much since the night it ran, just because I haven't had time, but I'm excited to see uh, where, where that's going to take them. Um, yeah, and, and I'm interested to see how many of these songs make it into the regular rotation because there's there's a lot more material here than Casper Facts. Like yeah. there, there are like what twelve songs here, and Casper Facts I guess didn't have that many less, eight or nine. Um, but I feel like you know these songs in their first outing on the Halloween set were stretched out a bit more than Casper Facts was. Like yeah. you, you know there was I think the longest track uh, for the Casper Facts set was Death Don't Hurt Very Long at like eight minutes. And here we had like three or four that went above 10, um, you know, and they kind of, you know, were playing around with the grooves. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see how many of these stick around and, you know, where they, they're found in set lists and, you know, how many they play again at MSG. Um, you know, like in 2018 for the New Year's run, they played all but one of the cast of back songs. Right. Yeah. They couldn't um, wait to play them again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm betting they show up again. Um, and I'm hoping, um, you know, next year it's not kind of like a, a 2019 deal where they were kind of awkwardly shoehorned into every show uh, and it kind of screwed with the flow a little bit. I think right. that was more Ghosts of the Forest than the Cast of Axe tunes. Mm, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I'm really interested to see where this material goes from here. I think, obviously, with Fish you know, everything can happen at any time. Um, and I think it's just the tip of the iceberg with this material. Right. The only thing that would be disappointing is if you knew if, if they were predictable, right. If you knew right, what was exactly. going to happen next. Uh, exactly. but then, I mean, that's a fun way to kind of tie it back around to like, 
the 11896 simple is part of this period where they had such uh, success on Halloween that they were still just sort of grappling with how they were going to integrate it into their sound yeah. uh, going forward. And it paid, you know, huge dividends going forward. Uh, uh, you're, you're good at bringing things back. Into <laughs> I've done a little podcasting, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is so, you know, we're at a perfect spot now for, for talking about all this stuff, because I think yeah. while sci-fi soldier was heavily foreshadowed by things like the deer Creek simple, I think there are some really cool places they can take it uh, yeah. when they're back on the road. Definitely. Definitely. What One thing also that's really, really cool about fish is how the Halloween theme, like, never leaks until like the morning of October 31st. I know they're so like, good. The fact that they can keep that secret, you know, while practicing it, uh, for weeks and, you know, having all of these, uh, like set pieces made and the costumes and the gear and everything. And, you know, like in the past, like for the Bowie set, having the extra members, uh, of the band coming down, like yeah. for the new year's gag too. And we have no idea what it is until it happens. Yeah. Which is just awesome. Yeah, they really have it on a lockdown. And I think it's just everybody in the organization, uh, you know, appreciates that it, it works best if it's a surprise. So uh, my yeah. friend Jesse Jarno, I don't know if you've had Jesse on yet. Um, I haven't. I, I did. I was uh, talking to him a bit after I posted about the Grateful Dead keyboard rig rundown. He's oh, OK. Yeah. Uh, so he had a hand in the Casbot Vax story. Like he yeah. wrote the fish bill that was sort of like the fake uh, biography of this fake album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was emailing with them the week before that show and we were talking about the fall tour and I'm like, man, I don't know what they're going to do on Halloween. And he's like, yeah, I have no idea either. And then <laughs> even the night when the fish bill came out, um, you know, they planted these fake links online and one of them was to WFMU. So I wrote to Jesse and I was like, Oh my God, they like found some obscure WFMU blog post. And Jesse's like, yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so like an hour later, I, it all people were starting to do the sleuthing online. And then I wrote back to Jesse. It was like, wait a second. You knew all <laughs> along, didn't you? <laughs> so it was, uh, so, you know, and Jesse is, you know, absolutely the kind of guy, even though he doesn't work for fish incorporated, you know, full time, he does freelance stuff for them. Uh, mm-hmm. he appreciates that keeping it a secret is, uh, is to the benefit of everybody. Uh, yeah. so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great tradition. I love that. I, I was thinking about it. I was talking to Steve Hyden about this. Um, he was kind of disappointed they didn't cover an album. Uh, and while I really loved the old album cover tradition, I think it's like the right move to be doing these original costumes. Yeah. And it it also keeps them stimulated creatively. Like, you know, obviously they don't need much help in that department anyway, but it's cool to see a band again, 38 years in, not Mm -hmm. just taking the crutch of, we could absolutely destroy eat a peach, but We're not going to because this is more fun. Yeah, it's more fulfilling to us, and it ends up working out better for everybody because, like, you know, the Ziggy Stardust year was fine. It didn't influence their sound at all. It had no, yeah. uh, you know, footprints. It left nothing. Uh, they didn't learn anything from it. I, guess. I, I do think. I do think uh, if Bowie hadn't passed this year, that year, I think it may have been another original composition because they started that in Halloween. Uh, mm-hmm. for, in Halloween, they started it in 2014 with Chilling Thrilling, uh, right. and so I'm I'm interested to see where they would have gone uh, in that year uh, without that. And I, I think it's definitely, you know, a point that somebody made uh, on Twitter the other day, which was great. Um, you know, how often do you go back and listen to the actual Halloween set performances of other people's albums? Yeah, and then. How much do you go back and listen to these songs that were written for these Halloween performances by the band? Like, right, right. you know, they, they have a lot more staying power. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. Chilling Thrilling is like my favorite fish album of like this entire era, I think. And I listen to it all the time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think they've chosen the right thing for themselves. And I think it, it works out, you know, for everybody as they are continuing to grow. Improbably, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I, I hate to, uh, you know, make this, uh, you know, Grateful Dead comparison thing, but because you're also very well versed on them, if the Dead decided to do a musical costume uh, of like this on a Halloween, yeah, um, and you know, say like, na- like pick from now on any album that's come out that the Dead could cover at any era, 
Wow. Or pick yeah. a couple for like you know seventies dead, eighties dead, whatever. Um, if they could, if you know, if they were going to do a musical costume, what would you like to see from them? Man, that's a great question. I mean, so the Trolley answer is to uh, like Dead and Company totally for Halloween one year should do uh, one of Mayer's albums, right? Oh my god, they should do what was that? What's that album? Body is a Wonderland or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> a continuum. Yeah, just, uh, that I would just be- want to hear Bobby sing "Your Body Is a Wonderland." Yeah, that's true too, and make Bob sing everything instead of with Mayer. a slide solo. <laughs> um, I mean, I think uh, if if you took. You know, 73, 74, dead at their jazziest uh, and had them play like kind of blue or something. That mm-hmm. would be incredible. Because that's the thing is like, I mean, it, they're not going to play something, I think, contemporary, right? And Fish doesn't usually play something contemporary. They play something they grew up on and something yeah. that influenced them. And so that's what I would want from the Grateful Dead. Like a 70s Grateful Dead would be them covering a jazz record uh like that that would really you know bring out one side of them but not necessarily be right in their wheelhouse uh yeah i think that would that would have been super cool and you know i saw dead company this summer and they did milestones and it was one of the coolest parts of the night and i know um i think one of those recent phil shows he also covered a miles davis song i'm blanking on what it was one of the phil and friend shows at the capitol uh so I love that they're kind of like digging back into these jazz roots that were always there, of course, but never quite explicitly, um, you know, covered. During yeah. The, and that time. What, what's been cool to me about the the post uh, Jerry dead projects is bringing back uh, older songs and stuff like, you know, viola Lee blues and mm-hmm. things yeah. like that, that. The dead hadn't played for 30 years and, you know, dead and company doing the 11, which they hadn't played since 1970. Like, it's cool to see them, you know, looking back and even, even though they're in no way close to innovating the way fish is, uh, at this stage, um, it's still cool to watch Bobby and Phil and those guys like still trying to, you know, put a, put a little bit of a fresh spin on things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Bobby finding that like music never stopped easy answers sandwich. I don't think that was something the dead ever did. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, you know, just stuff like that where, it's just it's 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 cool to watch yeah i mean it shows that they they get why they're such a special band and why bands like the dead and fish are you know are worthy of all this you know attention that we give them definitely uh is that you know they just they keep moving they keep evolving and they keep trying new things and you know playing with the past but not in like a nostalgia way in sort of like, you know, this has grown over time with us and we're going to give it a fresh perspective. Uh, and that's what I find just endlessly fascinating and satisfying about these bands, uh, you know, versus, you know, 99% of artists who just kind of rest on their laurels after a certain point uh, and, you know, try and either recreate the past or just stop, you know, moving forward. Right. Definitely. And I, I think that's a, that's a great place to wrap up the episode. Uh, thank you so much, Rob, for being on today. Uh, yeah, it was an absolute right. pleasure. Uh, and obviously, I can't wait for the next season of 36 from the Vault and to continue reading your uh, Fall 96 essays as they come along. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I, I, I will happily talk about fish for an hour anytime. So. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for uh, enabling my addiction. <laughs> of course. Mine as well. Yes. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of We Move Through Stormy Weather. Hope you have a fantastic day, and I will see you next time. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. Hello. 
welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.